It's been just over a year since I began talking to people for this podcast. When it began, I was really nervous. I felt really vulnerable, opening up to people, talking about such a sensitive topic and something that brought up so many difficult feelings for me. Listeners of this show will know that I felt angry, I felt sad, I've laughed and I've cried a lot. And though we've talked at length about grief being a messy personal journey with no linear path, I think the last year and two seasons of open and honest conversations have helped me arrive at a different place. I still miss my mum every single day, but I recognise my grief more and know how to handle it a little bit better. This season on Death Becomes Him, I talk to people who've experienced unimaginable loss. Each of their stories is unique, but as always, there is one commonality. Talking about it is therapy. This week, I speak to John McAreevy. In 2011, John suffered the loss of his new wife, Michaela, on honeymoon, when she was attacked and murdered by two intruders. The story of what happened was plastered on newspapers all over the world, and John found himself at the centre of an investigation and his grief on public display. He opens up to me today about the trauma of the incident and how he rebuilt his life and why he will never use the term moving on. John, how are you? Welcome to the first episode of season three of Death Becomes Him. Brian, thank you and thank you for the invitation. You know, I haven't really spoken publicly about my grief in that many settings in the past 10 years. From time to time, I have sort of visited certain groups that have asked me and uh, I've shared some of my thoughts, but um, whenever you extended the invitation, um, I was very, I was very uh, glad to receive that. Back 10 years ago, whenever I was experiencing all these feelings at the beginning, there was nothing like this. There was like, I guess 10 years ago, a podcast was something maybe that no one had heard of it first and foremost, but the very fact that you're doing this here and normalizing these conversations is really, really important. And I would have loved a resource like this to try to sort of convey my own thoughts whilst I was doing that. So um, really, really massive congratulations for doing something like this. It's really, really important. And that's why I would choose to sort of share my own sort of story, my own sort of thoughts, yeah. because you never know the impact that your words have uh, on other people. And I, I think that it's really important that people do that. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast. We've talked about every aspect of death, of grief, of loss. We've never covered grief and loss through murder before. And your name had come up on an Instagram post I'd put up about guests people would like to see on the future season of the show in season three. And I had obviously seen your name and I said, oh my goodness, of course, we all remember this tragedy. Like, because it was all over the world. It was absolutely everywhere. And that beautiful picture of you and Michaela and she was in her white wedding dress. You almost looked so perfect together. And then when I messaged you, I messaged you on the 8th of January and then I think I messaged you in the evening you got back to me on the 9th of January I was unaware that the following day on the 10th of January it was going to be Michaela's 10th anniversary yeah yeah it's crazy and um you know you, you made the point that it was almost like a worldwide story and I, I think because it was so tragic 
that's what caught people's um, attention. The fact that we were only ma uh, married a number of days before and, you know, at a time when you should be in the most perfect bliss of your life during your honeymoon, you know, for, for something so tragic to happen. It's almost um, incomprehensible to people. Um, and yeah, I guess that's why it probably traveled as a, as a news story so far. Um, and people just genuinely felt so, so sorry for, for me and for our families. Whenever I received an invitation, I did think, God, oh, you know, maybe, maybe it's time for me to sort of talk a little bit more publicly about um, about grief and about that personal feelings, because I have spoken quite a lot about obviously everything that subsequently happened in Mauritius, the whole trial process, the fact that we're still here today, 10 years down the line with, with, with justice not being delivered. But, uh, and that has really sort of become, you know, a big objective in my life. Um, so I've spoken quite a lot about that but not about, um, you know, how, how, how am I as a person? I, I also I, think that when I messaged you, I think we're meant to have this conversation. I think the fact that I messaged you on that date, people could think is, is random. I don't think it is random. I, I fully believe it's happened to me before when I've messaged other people for other episodes. The date that I book in, it'd be the person they lost, it'd be their birthday, or there'd be a date that would mean something to them. You just said something there on the start of the conversation, how you wish there had been this podcast or something like this 10 years ago. Mm. But do you think if, if, say if there was that and say you you and I had this conversation 10 years ago do you think if you were to listen to who you were 10 years ago how you'd feel today would much have changed do you think John in in, in your grief from 10 years ago yeah I mean absolutely um funny whenever I was collecting my thoughts about um our conversation here today I did think that you know and I know I've listened now to a couple of your previous uh, episodes on this podcast and you'd asked different guests about, you know, what would you say to someone, you know, who is starting that grieving journey uh, right at the beginning? And there is literally nothing that can prepare you for grief. Like people can, can start to listen to this now and they can read books, but you live, you have to live it, you have to live it, you have to feel it, you have to own it. So me setting out at the very beginning uh, of this grief journey, uh, if that's what you want to call it, um, and where I am today um, would be two completely different conversations. Um, there is nothing, unfortunately, you can do to prepare for it. It's not like any other area of your life when you know something is going to happen and you can read up on it. It's, for me, in my opinion, you just you can't do that. So you really have to go through it, come out the other side, and then you will have the benefit of understanding all those feelings that you experienced then, why you felt like that at a certain time. Um, so yeah, I think it would just be a completely different conversation, Brian. 
I think what you've said there, I think is correct. And I think that's exactly what I try and do with my grief with the loss of our mom is try and manage it in a way that is beneficial to me and to my family. And a word you use there that I can definitely agree with is a journey. But I think it's a journey that us individually are going to be on for life because you're going to carry that sadness and that loss and that grief with you. But it's how you manage it in a positive way. Yeah, most definitely. I would really agree with that. And, you know, something that you will have heard, um, you know, ever since your mom died and what I have heard and anybody that experienced grief really, you know, this, this concept or notion of moving on in life and it always really bugged the life out of me whenever someone said that. And yet you never move on because I always understood that as simply, oh, I've experienced this now. Now I'm going to move on from that. Almost like, you know, I was in university X amount of years ago and then I moved on from that part of my life. So for me, it was always about moving forward with this being a part of my life now and that um that sort of thinking and that understanding allowed me to deal with uh, trying to actually move forward in life and have a place uh, for 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 this grief in my life and it didn't um it didn't sort of give me the guilt that if i was trying to move forward in life trying to have a life uh, after the death of Michaela, that I wasn't simply putting that into a box and storing it away. So that was a very important thing for me. Um, the, it'll always be there. It's part of who I am now because, you know, I have, I have grown as a person so much having had these experiences in my life. Yes, they have been awful, but you know, I've grew from them. So you have to honor them. You have to look at them and say, you know, they were awful experiences, but you asked about, you know, being positive. How do you do that? They're going forward. And it's about, you know, honoring those experiences and uh, taking them forward, owning them. Uh, so that is how I observe this, this whole process, this whole journey. And I guess it allows me to live a life um, in a normal way, uh, even though I've experienced awful, awful things. I like what you said there. You're not moving on. You're moving forward. And it's just the simple you swap out the word on and put in the word forward. And it sounds more inclusive that Michaela moves forward with you. Whereas if you say you're moving on. It's like, oh, I'm done with that. I'm done with that person. This is, I'm moving on with my life. It's, it's a much happier phrase. It's more, it's more positive. It is. And I think, I think uh, the, key, the key dynamic of that change of phrase, Brian, is around control. And it's around controlling the, the, the things in your life that impact us. So a um, further example of that is... Um, given the nature of the awful way that Michaela had uh, to, to die, you know, I had a huge problem that I would always have these visions of what happened. Michaela come to me um, every day, every day for a long, long time. And I wanted to know how to handle that. Um, 
So instead of just blocking out that that those visions coming, and like they could come like at the most random times, you know, it wouldn't have to be something that triggered it. You know, I could simply be involved in a task and and all of a sudden, you know, this would come into my mind. So instead of just like trying to block them out, after a while, because the blocking out actually doesn't happen, after a while I just said, you know what, I'm actually going to think about this for a while. It's come into my mind now. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to give it two or three minutes. And then I'm going to say, okay, I'm done thinking about that now. Now I'm going to move forward with my day. And all, like nothing changed, but, but, but what changed for me was that I was the one that was controlling that. So I was the one saying, okay, I am going to think about this now, but now I'm going to move forward. And it's the same thing about controlling, you know, how we view where we are in this year uh, grief process, you know, and that's why I'm saying moving forward to me, it gives me more control over it rather than just moving on, you know, and um, because moving on means that I'm going to try to almost block out something again, and that doesn't work. That doesn't work because it'll come back to bite you in your ass whenever you, whenever you're least prepared for it. I find myself now, you know, three years in, that I now can control the emotion a bit more, whereas a year in I couldn't. And I think a lot of people sometimes struggle with the control. You know, people are at different stages with the grief, and then someone could be ten years in and could still be so emotional and could yeah. be triggered by. The, you know, I've got friends of mine that can't talk about the person they've lost because it still is too emotional. It's a word I'm using quite a lot lately and it's it's just sad. Yeah. It's all just so sad. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, um for a very long time I was I was a very sad person. People always say that time is a great healer and you, you never Is it want... actually that that's actually yeah. a good question. Is, is it John? Is is time a great healer? You know the, the first person to say it to me that, you know, I didn't take kindly to what they said. You're like, shut your um, mouth. What a stupid thing to yeah, say, of course. Yeah, to be to be very polite about it. But um, it is the truth, Brian, because um, you just learn through your different experiences and that rawness starts to become, you know, to me, like I always envisioned, envisioned it as almost like a big wound at the very beginning. So like there's this huge big wound and then through time the, the wound will start to sort of close over and become smaller and smaller. Now the wound is still there and if you poke it, you will feel that rawness, mm. but it's not a huge wound anymore. I mean, at the beginning, like I was, you know, the sadness, God of almighty, I mean, it was just, it, it was unbearable at times. You know, it, I probably could have been a little bit easier on myself in terms of things that I needed to experience. But I, I wanted to feel everything at different times. I had to let it out and, you know, literally spending nights crying or waking up crying was a thing that I, that I experienced. And to be honest, and you know, this might be something that you're familiar with, but there is a comfort in that sadness 
And in that time of sort of intense emotion, you know, the sense of sort of moving out of that zone into the unknown, whatever that next phase is going to be, was was quite scary. So 10 years down the line, I think, I think by and large, I got things right for me. You know, I'm in a place in my life now where, you know, there is calmness, there is love, there is joy. And whenever you're stuck in those early phases, that is just an alien concept and that you don't think is ever going to be available to you as a person. And certainly, in my instance, you know, a young 26-year-old guy, you know, you kind of think, you kind of think your life is over at that stage um, because obviously your identity becomes wrapped whenever you sort of marry someone, you know, you kind of form this identity together and, you know, whenever that is that is crushed, you're, you're left with the pieces of, you know, what's there now and then, you know, you have this sort of identity crisis yourself because, you know, you're not part of what, what, what you'd become. When I said to you earlier about this being a global news story and it really was. What was Michaela like? What was she like as a person? To me, she seemed like she was so much fun. That yeah. was just, it's so weird. That's what I just thought looking at that picture and reading what people were saying about her. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah. And that picture definitely was a snapshot of, of our whole sort of, you know, that that's the pinnacle there, aren't you? You know, you've just yeah. been married and, you know, so... Michaela. And it's the only thing of people like me who sadly didn't know Michaela or you, you know, at the time, that's the only image that we have that was mm. beamed around the world. Yeah, it's funny, um, you know, the different things that you, you start to to feel grateful for after a while. And, you know, Michaela was taken away when she sat or 27 years of age, you know, just so cruel and had a whole new life to live, you know, as as a married person, um, potentially a mother and, yeah. you know, and experience all those things in life. But, you know, being grateful for small mercies, part of me was like, you know, maybe just trying to comfort myself that, you know, she was in the prime of her life and she didn't have to experience, you know, a lot of awful things that, that do happen through the course of the life. So she'll always be remembered as that, you know, sort of beautiful 27-year-old person in her prime. And she only really uh, experienced good things in her life up to that point, Brian. You know, yeah. um, she never had to suffer um, even grief herself. Um, and funny, she, she obviously, she had a very, very strong relationship uh, with her family and it would have been well known she's a very strong relationship with her father and even back then I would have had thoughts that you know someday she's going to have to grieve you know the loss of her father and her mother and I suppose in many ways I was sort of priming myself for being the person that would be helping her through that but I was grateful then that she never had to experience that she only got to be that strong, bubbly person that enjoyed life, uh, enjoyed going out, enjoyed social occasions. Um, there's not many people that get to do that. So, you know, obviously it ended in the most cruel of circumstances, but I guess for me, I, I try to sort of look at things that, that 
that are positive and, and that comfort me in dealing with this most tragic of situations. You know, you were asking, you know, what sort of person was Michaela? And Michaela was someone that had an extraordinary relationship with God as well. She's, for a young person, she had an extraordinary faith. And, you know, I think a lot of of how I was able to process things and to sort of take this positive stance was knowing that, um, knowing where Michaela was now, like right from the beginning, right from the beginning, um, I was able to accept that Michaela was now with God as opposed to worrying, you know, or in doubt, where is it like that's you know that's over now for Michaela so whilst on a human level and on a personal level you know I grieved and I yearned for Michaela here on earth you know I was able to accept that she was with God which made things much easier for me you know in terms of actually you know just reconciling things in my head you know so that was very comforting for me uh, to know that. And because she had such a strong faith, um, I just, I knew, I knew that she was going to be with God. And whilst it wasn't what I wanted to, to happen, of course. Or, it, you know, it, it was what it was. Uh, and whilst I struggled with why that had to happen. That was going to be, you know, I'm also... Catholic, being gay and being Catholic is something I've struggled with probably most of my life, but I'm at peace with it now. Mm -hmm. Do you think having your strong faith and Michaela having her strong faith actually helped you in this process and make sense of in the way that you lost Michaela through murder, the process of how it happened? How did you find peace with that? First of all, Bran, it's for me, you know, being a Catholic, your relationship is with God. So obviously you've had a different journey and trying to sort of reconcile things and maybe stereotypically being a gay man and a Catholic, you know, isn't something that's going to work. Your relationship with God is yours and yours alone. Yeah, did it help things reconcile? It most definitely did. Um, you know, I did struggle with, you know, you know, there's a, there's a famous book, what, why do bad things happen to good people? And like, you know, what what more of an innocent person could be than, 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 than Michaela? You know, just a young, beautiful woman in the prime of her life, a teacher, um, very sort of <laughs> clean cut. You know, she was a pioneer. She didn't drink alcohol. She, she just enjoyed the very, very simple things in life. So, you know, why, why did she have to die uh, in such a cruel manner? And I guess after a while, I just had to accept that, that, uh, that, that God gives people free will and, um, you know, things will happen that will, that will happen outside, you know, the control, if, for lack of a better word, of sort of, of God's um, plan. And, you know, one of the biggest things that we have uh, as, as Catholics is faith. And it, it, it's the word faith is about sort of believing in things that, that you can't see, that you can't feel. So you have to have faith. 
for whatever reason that I will never understand. Maybe at some stage I will. Um, maybe, you know, whatever I have to, or whatever I hopefully uh, get to the pearly gates, but maybe that it'll become a little bit clearer, but there's things that I just won't understand. And I have to have faith that there is a plan there. And, you know, that is something that, that actually Michaela was very, very strong about, you know, about God's plan. And she believed in that. She believed in that wholeheartedly. When you were going on honeymoon, you must have been so excited. I was listening to your uh, podcast, Murder in Mauritius, last night. I think I listened to like eight episodes. I said to you before we started chatting, I could hear your voice all night calling because your sister Claire is on the podcast with you and you were going, Claire, Claire. So all, all night, all I was hearing was Claire, Claire. The soothing sounds of John McGregor. Yes, actually, yeah. you made me sleepy, but not in a bad way. It's just because it was like half past one in the morning and I was so engrossed in the podcast murder in Mauritius, which I'm sure people can still listen to on all podcast platforms. You were saying your day on the 10th of January, 2011, just started out, you had breakfast together. You went, I think, on a golf lesson. Michaela lay by the pool, you know, 2 p.m. You went for lunch. Then Michaela wanted something sweet. I think you said it was a, was it a dark chocolate Kit Kat? Yeah. That she wanted. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. And that you said she brought them, uh, you know, from... Dubai with her and how she she wanted to go and that sounds so normal you know just so like yeah 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 and then like in a split second you were wondering oh I wonder I wonder where she is and then you also said something that you kind of said to her oh no I'll go right you said yeah. no I'll go and then you had said how you you know had been running around on the honeymoon you know she was your beautiful bride and she's like no no you sit here you relax so at any point in all of this grief did you think to yourself i should have went how did you make peace with that you know what we're like as humans yeah. we, we can all sit back and go why did i should i should have was there at any point that you over the last 10 years that you thought to yourself why didn't i say to her no i'll go yeah well i mean you could probably imagine brian um yeah. It's it's something that that to be perfectly frank that I struggle with um, because there is no reason why I should feel any guilt. But of course not. But, no. But but I do, <laughs> and um, you know it's that notion that um, you know you're 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 there as a new husband and not even having to be married, but, you know, I was just the type of person I am, you know, I, I always try to look after people and I always try to look after the most important people in my life. So, um, and when you're in a relationship, you know, um, a guy generally would, would sort of look to take care or protect. And, you know, maybe that feeling was even stronger whenever we traveled, um, whenever we traveled anywhere, you know, when you're going to places that are just sort of unfamiliar. So, and the thing about actually going for that brand, going for that bloody biscuit was that um, the, the night before we were having uh, drinks in the, the sort of lobby bar and, and Michaela wanted to do the same thing, to have a, a chocolate bar with her tea. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, I walked back to our room to get that, which was no real pain at all. It was probably a five, ten minute walk. But because I did that the night before, she's she um didn't want me having to run about everywhere for her. So that's why I'm, not, I'm, 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 I'm laughing when you're saying that because I can imagine the relationship. That's exactly what it's like, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's exactly a very normal conversation normal. that any couple, what boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, husbands, that's just how a relationship is. Yeah. You know, and like, you know, that's in, you know, in another <laughs> lifetime, you know, that would have happened the way I would have said, no, so I just go and I would have went to the room Um and, and we could be dealing with, you know, it would have been something that you would just, it, it would have never experienced the way it, had, it happened. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that has been a difficult one for me, I guess. Sorry, I, guess, I hope, John, that wasn't an uncomfortable question no, for no, you. It's no, just something no, that it, no, that it no, might, I, right, you're yeah. F- it's just stuff I think as humans, we do, we sometimes want to cause pain to ourselves. We want to question the what ifs and the coulda, shoulda, wouldas constantly. For sure. And look, you know, you know, whenever I talk, Brian, like I, I talk, you know, honestly and openly. So, I mean, you know, the very fact that I say, yeah, it's something that I struggle with. It is something that I struggle with um, because it's the idea that, you know, Michaela was with me. She was aware with me and I was meant to look after and I didn't look after. Now, obviously, you know, you know, I don't have, you know, I am not the reason that Michaela isn't here. You know, she, Absolutely. she went to the room and, you know, everything, um, everything happened the way it did. But yeah, it's that, that had been a particular problem. And probably, you know, it is, it's a driver for me that I continue to sort of chase justice on this, you know, because, um, yeah, I just think that that's, that is one thing that uh, is at least that Michaela uh, is owed is is that form of justice. Justice, totally. Um, so, yeah, it's a big thing. When you were sitting by the pool and you were there waiting for her and time had lapsed, in the back of your mind, were you going oh, she's probably gone to the shop or she met someone or she was chatting with someone. What did you think where, where she was or she was in the room or was she having a nap? What played out in your mind for wondering why she hadn't come back from getting her biscuit? Yeah, I mean, I get uh, very vivid thoughts about that time. Yeah. And, um, you know, at, like after a couple of minutes, you don't notice anything. You're just there, you know, Consumed um, in whatever you're doing by the pool, whether you're reading or relaxing, of course. Yeah, just we had actually just finished lunch, which was right by the pool. So yeah, you were just probably um, enjoying, you know, this wonderful sort of paradise or where you were. Uh, and then after a while, I was like, oh, what, you know, what's going on? I, I just want to check here. So that's when I went to the room. But whenever I went to the room, I couldn't actually get access. I didn't. I have a key card and whenever I knocked, I, and Michaela didn't answer. And I guess at that point, um, I thought that is a bit odd, but I knew that it wasn't something, you know, that was, I didn't immediately rush to worry. I just thought it was a little bit odd. So me, you weren't thinking danger no. straight away or kicking that um, door and you, you'd no reason to. 
No, sir. I mean, they're absolutely, you know, there's absolutely no sort of indication that there would be any, <laughs> any sort of, uh, yeah, just any problem. Like any foul foul play or any, any issue any, where you'd have to panic. Any danger. Um, yeah. But then, obviously, then, then I went back over the tool, looked for my key, they went back, couldn't find it, had to go to the reception. And then by, by that time, you know, sort of maybe 10, 15 minutes more had passed. At that time, then, I started to sort of worry. I started to worry. And then whenever I got access to the room, then, then um, yeah, it's... It became real, unfortunately. Yeah. How do you process when all of this is happening? Is it panic? Is it shock? What are you thinking? Are you making any sense of what's happening? Um, my mind was, was running, obviously, at a very frantic pace. And... Um, Initially, I felt that that Michaela had got into the bath because she had been experiencing a bit of back pain. And I thought, God, maybe she's got a bit of a bad twinge here. She's put on the bath tub to sort of just soak in it there for five, ten minutes or whatever. And she's um, she's fainted. Um, and the bath has continued to fill up. Um, now, like this is going through your mind, you know, in milliseconds, like that sort of speed, like it's, and as I'm rushing over and taking the keel out and um, and then it becomes evident to me that, that that's something, that someone uh, has, has inflicted this on me. Yeah, so. Actually, that was going to be, yeah, my next question. You went from thinking, you know, this was just an accident she obviously got into the bath, you know, with back pain. I think you said in your podcast that you thought maybe she'd passed out from the heat and that could have been what happened. So yeah. when was it then you started to go, you know, when you obviously remove her, you put her on the floor, you're thinking, actually, this it, this wasn't an accident. This, this, this was murder or foul play. Yeah, well, I don't really want to go into too much detail around this, Brian. But yeah, yeah because I, because I seen marks on Michaela's body, then I knew. Um, so you know, but even at that point, like you're in a mode of um, this isn't actually real. This isn't actually happening. And you know, my whole sort of mode at that time was even though I was really, really scared, I simply wasn't accepting that she was gone. I yeah, was frantically trying to get medics, you know, to, you know, perform CPR, to get her heart going, you know. And, you know, even though, like, like you're doing this in one part of your mind, and then in the next part of your mind, you're like, you're in that dark, dark space because you know that 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 she's gone you would never ever be able to sort of comprehend you know the complexity of it of one moment being in the most sort of best position you've ever been in in your life uh and then you know 10 minutes later you're in the depths you're in the worst place uh, of your life and at that time um, and then I had to obviously experience everything with the police and being taken away and, and all of that. But to be honest, 
all of that didn't really matter because like I was gone, I was on the ground. It didn't matter what else happened to me. You know, it was immaterial in some ways uh, because, you know, I just suffered this this massive loss. So nothing really mattered to me uh, anymore. So it became a very, very um, lonely space very quickly. Obviously, it was there for for another two days uh, before any family members actually could, could reach me. Um, so, yeah, it was just an extraordinary time, an extraordinary tough time. Um, and obviously, it, it took probably a long time to actually deal with the traumatic nature. So, obviously, you know, experiencing traumatic death as opposed to just what will term a normal death it adds further layers of complexity to what you have to process you know yeah um, i couldn't simply you know go to grief i you know i had to sort of deal with everything else as well and um you know we touched on at the very start of our conversation brian about whilst i said you know, it's brilliant that you have sort of launched this here resource for people to try to sort of um, help with their own journey. But at the very, very beginning for me, and whenever I returned back to Ireland, like there was nothing for me to try to sort of process all these different thoughts. And, and like, you know, you, you can't jump onto Google and like say like, you know, what, you know, what do I do about my thoughts? My wife has been killed. And, you know, I'm 26. We were married for 10 days. You know, like, where do you go with all that? That became a lonely, um, lonely experience. And, and it's not something that you want to talk too much about, even with your family and friends, because they're grieving as well. And they're worried about you. And you don't want them to worry more about you. So you're sort of, you're trying to process it. Like, I don't know what that is about. It seems to be with Irish people and maybe men more specifically that we just want to keep things to ourselves and try to deal with it ourselves. Do you think it's um, embarrassment? Is it shame? Is it being afraid to cry because you're a macho man? What do you think it is? I mean, like, I was never afraid actually of of showing my emotions and I did cry, but I, I, I guess the overriding feeling for me was protect other people, protect my family, because I could see how worried they were for me. Yeah. I did not want to add to that anger or to that worry because, you know, I love my family. I don't want to sort of inflict more pain on them, even though it's a bad thought to be thinking like that. But for me, I just wanted to, um, like about, I think it was about two and a half months after Michaela died, and we obviously had bought a house, and I chose to move into that house because I was really, really in a place where I wanted my own space. And mm. um, I because I wanted to really pray, and I wanted to do that by myself, you know? And I, I, it's not that I was embarrassed, but... I guess I wanted the freedom to cry and to just feel and let all those emotions out and not have to sort of worry about how this might impact other people. Um, but yes, you're right, Brian. There is that degree of sort of 
toxic masculinity about us that yeah it's like stiff off our lift and I'm like yeah. that's, that's the way a lot of people were brought up to be and it's yeah. nonsense like you know um and normalizing these conversations like we are having is one step um to sort of removing that Michaela was murdered on the 10th I think you went back on the 13th I think it was a Thursday you know you, you fly mm-hmm. back and then I'm visualizing the difference in from the, when you arrive there to a few days later you're leaving and Michaela's past. She's, you know, she's not alive anymore. And then I'm trying to myself how you're feeling. Like, it, shock has to be a very good thing because it numbs you, John. Surely. Yeah. Because yeah. also the contrast of all that love and that happiness and, you know, a young couple on their honeymoon. And then to a few days later, you're like, how do you get on that plane, buckle your seatbelt and just sit there and, I, so I got, what the fuck? I couldn't even imagine what you were feeling. Yeah, like, you know, if, if before this all happened to me, Brian, I would be in the exact same position as you. It's not something yeah. that you could ever even dream up. Like, it's just, you know, the most awful thing. And yeah, you know, you said it there, it was around shock. And, you know, looking back, yeah, you know, I was in shock and you were just trying to, you were trying to sort of just comprehend things and they're happening so, so quickly. You know, like we got back, I think it was on the Thursday and then on Friday we, we had the wake and you know what Irish wakes are like. This became like, like there was like a three-day wake and like there was, there was literally thousands of people from all around Ireland were, were coming to this wake. And um, so you're in that and you're processing that. And then on the Monday, you had the funeral, which was a huge, huge funeral. And all of this kept on going on, going on. And it's like, there's no time to draw breath here. So it's like, you know, where do you start with all of this? When you were on the plane, when this was happening, were you aware, or I know family members had flown out to join you because you were, you were by yourself. Were you aware or did you comprehend how big this was? And when you got back home and, you know, the day of the wake and all those people, were you wondering why is there so many people here? So I didn't, it wasn't until I got back to Ireland until I understood the magnitude of the thing. And it, it took me, that, that part took a long time for me, Brian, to sort of understand, you know, why this was such a huge um story and you know so that's why there was so many difficult things for me to try to process people all over ireland and and further were starting to sort of recognize recognize you to be this person in this sort of situation and it was just it was a minefield brand um and maybe that Maybe that con- contributed to the fact that I wanted sort of my own space so I could almost retreat to, to sort of, because any time I went out anywhere then, um, you know, you'll, you'll know this obviously, you know, in huge public life, people will recognize you, but people were recognizing me for the most awful thing possible. And I had no experience of that. You know, there was a lot uh, that I had to try to understand and to try to take forward. But to be honest, at the beginning, whilst I observed all this going around me, 
it didn't really impact me because it didn't matter to me and because I just lost everything so it didn't really matter and I guess my personality type was I don't really be impacted by by other people anyway but after a while you know when I was sort of came out of the bubble and out of that shock factor you quickly have to sort of adapt to sort of you know this isn't going away anytime soon and obviously because because of the fact that Michaela was murdered and became an international story because it happened obviously over Mauritius and then there was going to be the trial and stuff there was you know, there was going to be things for, for the next coming years that that weren't going away and that I just had to try to navigate, uh, which made navigating my own grief um, more complex because there was other elements that, that had to go on. So I was just, a, you know, at the, at the beginning, I said that, look, you know, having the advantage of looking back and, and taking the positives that I've, that I've grown through my experiences, you certainly wouldn't choose to experience the things that I have, but I just had to, I had no other choice. Um, it was either sort of sink or swim really was, would be the analogy that I would use. And, and, um, yeah, a crazy time. Michaela's funeral was almost like a state funeral. It was so big. There was such an outcry from people, you know, people really felt the emotion of of the sadness yeah you know because i i didn't enjoy our mom's funeral I, a bit like what you had said there which i relate to i wanted to kind of go indoors i wanted to close the doors and close the curtains and just everyone leave me alone and unfortunately you can't do that because people are being so kind mm -hmm. people want to sh show you that they love you that they support you that they're here for you you know how did you find the actual funeral itself um, um, the, the day of the funeral, um, it was kind of, it was, it was becoming, I suppose, the end of almost this sort of marathon, um, event for lack of a better word, because we had the, the, the wake on the Friday, the Saturday, Sunday, and it was culminating in the funeral on the, on the Monday. So in in sort of one way as I was happy to sort of reach this point because I kind of believe that well then all the sort of madness will calm down now. Um but on the on the Monday itself actually it was a beautiful, beautiful day. Really the sun was shining and that made things uh, a bit easier, even logistically, even sort of walk down the road. Um but yeah I kind of I took solace from that. You know that, that you know that was God's way and Michaela's way of saying that that I am here, that 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 I'm in a good place. Um, but yeah, I mean the enormity of it, I suppose, just it sort of kind of overwhelmed me a little bit. Um, but because I was in such a sort of low place anyway, Brian, it didn't really matter to me. It just, right. it just, it just was a sideshow. And whilst it was a beautiful thing, and I was always very, very grateful of the amount of people that did come and show their respects and then ripped after. And, of course, the amount of people that I was actually praying for me at that time, I really did feel that. And the thought, the thought that people were actually praying uh, for me was a very strong thing. I really believe in the power of prayer. And 
a lot of people when they suffer they don't have that so i kind of looked at that as a positive thing and that sort of um that sort of kept me strong but as you know brian like it's it's only whenever i use the term when the music stops and um it becomes real again and that's when you really start to sort of to grieve and because you're left everything is calmed down and you're you're just left with the reality of a world without that person anymore and that's that's when it becomes um really sad because actually you know certainly whilst the funeral was was incredibly sad the wake itself um was was um almost an uplifting thing mm. um Irish wakes are a really positive thing, I think. A place of joy. They can be jovial, whether yeah. that's whether that's nervous energy and it needs to be let out. Um, but like there was moments of laughter, there was tears. Of course. You know, yes. it's just it's a beautiful thing. And I think we're very lucky that 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 that's there for us in our culture. I think because they're still physically there in the coffin, you can touch yeah. their hand, you can stroke their hair, you can kiss them, you know, you can share stories about them. And because they're there with you, I think it allows you to laugh and to yeah. be humorous because they're completely part of it. Yeah, I guess my feeling about that was that Whilst Michaela's body was there, her spirit and her soul was already with, with God. And yeah. that's how I felt about it. So it wasn't a huge thing for me that I had to like constantly be there at, at the coffin. I wouldn't have had the opportunity anyway, probably because like there was so many people coming and going. It just would have been hugely overwhelming. So um, I, as I say, early, I always felt that um, that Michaela was with God now, so um, her sort of physical body didn't play a huge sort of role for me, and I'm really, really pleased that I kind of was able to sort of think that way and feel that way. Um, I know people, you know, feel differently. Sometimes it's, it's hard to believe that, you know, the person is there in a coffin, but to me, that's just the physical body, you know, you know, um, I can understand we, that. We're, we're, I get we're that. Much, we're, we're much more than that, you know. When all of this had ended, the wake, the funeral, did you feel, John, when you were out and about, paranoid that you had to behave in a certain way or of someone seeing you laugh? Because you now had a public, a very public profile, which, you know, that doesn't happen to a lot of people who lose someone. Um, it didn't. It didn't really. So... Whilst I was able to sort of see that, okay, you know, you can feel those eyes on your brand. Like I didn't actually, because, and again, I'm fortunate that I feel this way. I just, I don't care what, what other people think, you know. I, I need to be more like you. <laughs> yeah, but like, it's like, I mean, those people are going to form their own opinions anyway. Mm. So like, if, if, if people are there thinking, God, there's that, there's that guy and, and, his, his wife just died three months ago, you know, and he's laughing, you know, like what, what the hell God, like he, you know, he's getting over things, but yeah. Mm. So what you're, you're meant to play this sort of victim where you go, yeah. like, you know, numb. I mean, that, that's not real. That's not life. I mean, I agree with you. Honor those feelings, honor the moments where you're happy, honor the moments where you're sad. 
I've heard things, I've seen things about myself and, you know, it's crap, but like, you know, all of these things, you know, they're, they're always about, about other people, Brian. They're always about other people. They're never about me. They're never about you. It's just whatever space people are in in their own lives. So I think the quicker that, that we all can accept that, uh, the quicker that life will be easier on ourselves. When you, you know, you became a widower at 26 years of age, so, so young. Did you ever, back then, all those years ago, ever think to yourself you'd ever be happy again? No, definitely not. I mean, that's whenever you're, you're sort of, your life is, is crushed uh, so venomously, you know, in such a cruel, cruel way. Um there is no, there is no light. There is no light. There is no hope. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a lot of, there, it's just darkness. It's darkness. Um, and, you know, I would have never thought that, that you could be in a position where you would even, um, you know, experience love again, you know, because how could you? I mean, you know, you're a married man. You, you love your husband and, you, you could never think about, you know, loving someone the way you do uh, yeah. to Arthur. So, you know, you, you can't comprehend those things. So I very much felt that, you know, that was, that was that for me for a very long time. Now, obviously, we talked about at the beginning, you know, like time is a great healer. And, you know, the beauty of life starts to open up again. The grey clouds start to part. And there is glimmer of light that comes in. And I guess that's what happened in my own life. Um, and I was, I suppose, open enough to um to embrace that. Um and I didn't I didn't feel didn't feel any way sort of negative about that. Um I kind of felt that that it was a way that it was a time for me that, that 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 had to happen and that I guess in many ways, you know, Michaela would have wanted to happen. And you are a dad, baby James. Baby James, yeah. When did baby yeah. James arrive? In October, yes. Oh, October, so, okay. So, so yes, we're three months now, so What's yeah. that like? Are you are you sleeping? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of an issue at the moment. Um He'd been sleeping very well, but then we've been trying to sort of get him on to a better routine. And it's, yeah, he's not sleeping brilliant at the moment. But you know what, Brian? I'm not complaining too much because he's just, he is just such a joy. And um, the embodiment of just the best thing about life, he's just, he's just, yeah, he's just a complete blessing. And we're just overjoyed, you know, to be, to be in this situation in our lives. And it's funny because... You know, people have been, you know, you'll see it online and everywhere. 2020 has been the worst year ever. And like yeah. for us, for us, it's been, you know, whilst, okay, let's take away all, you know, the awful things that have happened through this pandemic and people who, on a personal level, you know, we've experienced great, great joy. So it's been a wonderful year for us. Um, and we're just so glad to have it. Felt like 2020 was the year that just kept on giving just in every aspect. It's like, stop with the shitty bad news. And yeah. I'm thinking, you know, I think something that I'll talk about a lot on this podcast with other guests that are coming up in, in the series is how COVID 
I don't think, I think will will hinder people's grief. I think the fact that funerals are so, so different now that people can't embrace, you know, they can't hug, people can't be there for each other. Yeah, no, it's a huge point. And, you know, like we are very sociable beings and that connection is just so important and no more so in the times, you know, whenever we lose people, it must be so, so awful. Like you've heard the different stories People not being able to even attend sort of grandparents, yeah, um, sort of funerals and stuff. So to not be there for your friends and your family and to have that connection and to hug, like we're, I'm a big hugger. Like I love feeling that human connection in people. Um, oh, you could have hugged me today, John, if you were here. <laughs> Darn it, you owe me yeah. a hug. Another time, yeah, definitely. Whilst it would be nice maybe to get out a little bit more and almost show off claims to the world. Like mm. it's been a lovely bubble um, that, that the three of us have been able to experience by ourselves. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just really grateful for that. I seen because I was stalking your Instagram. Obviously, it's how I get all my guests <laughs> for this podcast. Like I'm flying into DMs. Honestly, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and I noticed we were in, I think, the Westbury the same day before Christmas. Oh, I seen you, okay. and we, we, we you could have hugged me then. I think we overlapped. We yeah, so we we would have bumped into each other back yeah. then before Christmas. Yeah, we missed the opportunity. Obviously, Tara, you know, she, she heals from Kildare like yourself, and we are um, the best. We are yeah. the best. <laughs> I'll not argue, but Tara lived in Dublin for five years and worked in Dublin. And it's just such a really important place for her. So we would have always went down at Christmas. Um, so we were determined to go um, and to bring James and to get, get him down to Dublin. And it was a lovely thing, um, even though it was, it was slightly different. But just, you know what it's like, just walk down Grafton Street with the lights. Oh, I know, and the big Christmas tree in the yeah, Westbury. Oh, you know I know. It's, it's, it's a lovely thing. Um, you've actually made me feel completely okay with my grief and the journey I'm on because I've recognised everything you've said, the words you've used, as opposed to moving on, you move forward and about being in control and about feeling it. I was very much like that and I'm, I'm still like that. And I believe in if you're feeling an emotion, express it you know, whether it's a cry or a laugh. So I can kind of agree with everything you've said to me is kind of rang through to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's lovely to hear you say that, Brian. And look, you know, whilst there is a huge amount of similarities in what people will experience with grief, it is unique. And mm. um, it's funny, whenever Michaela died at the beginning, it really used to annoy me, actually, that... that when people would have said, you know, I've lost my husband or I've lost my wife or I've lost, and I know how you feel. And whilst I understood that they were just trying to be um, empathetic in that moment and almost out of solidarity, it really used to annoy me because I was like, you've no idea how I feel because you don't know me. You didn't know Michaela, you didn't know our relationship. So how could you say you know how I feel? And I would never ever say that to anyone. But mm. I guess there's it's probably along that area that whilst a lot of people will mean well, you know, a lot of times they'll say things that just that that, that just don't actually do you any good. And even now, you know, if ever I was sp speaking to someone that had lost um you know, a husband or a wife. I would never say I, I know how you feel, um, but I would I would listen more intently 
and I would try to offer anything that 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 could help. But there, you know, the kindest words you know that probably I ever received was to be to be kind to yourself. From what happened to you, you know, there has to be trauma, and in your relationship now, you know, with everything, have you carried any of that? trauma with you say if you and Tara and James you know are out and about or on holiday and Tara goes away for a walk anytime in your mind do you go oh she's been two minutes she's been five minutes she's been 10 minutes have you managed any of that trauma where you go into panic mode at all there's there's in in the relationship that me and Tara's had there's been a number of occasions Mm. where Tara's Pop to the shops and has been longer uh, than, than normal. And I've experienced um, a lot of anxiety over in, in those moments. Um, that will probably be magnified now with James. And of course, even now, as someone that has sort of tried to deal with trauma in my life, like I already go to places in my mind you know, almost like some sort of inevitability that Tara will one day be taken from me. And I think it's, I've tried, like I've spent so long trying to sort of understand that. And I think it is my mind sort of way almost in preparing me almost to sort of lessen the blow if something was that was likely to happen. They're not thoughts that sort of are, are there all the time. But it's just the way my mind will operate now. And um, I'm not sort of saying that, God, it's, it's going to happen. I'm just, it's a matter of time. It, it is there. It is there. And it is one of the consequences of that, uh, of that tr- trauma in my life. I don't feel that, you know, it holds us back in anything. I don't think that it's a very noticeable thing, even with Tara. Um, even though she's very aware of it, obviously we've had lots of conversations, but it's just there now, Brian. And you know, it's part of your life. Probably, it probably is. And if if it is, then so be it. I seen an interview or a quote uh, that you had said. I don't know how recent it is, and you had said, "I think people at times think that when you have suffered the way that I have suffered." that maybe you just have to continue to be clouded by negative energy and you have to live your life a certain way, almost in victim mode. But the reality is that life has been very good to me. Well, that, and again, like I always try to be open and honest and like we had touched on it earlier about, you know, should you almost play to a certain mode because people might have this expectation of you you know, when you go out and about, or as I see you laugh, God, what does that mean? You know, um, but like, how could I sit here today with a beautiful wife, with a beautiful son, with a lovely family, a, a brilliant group of friends, and not be thankful and not be grateful? To me, that's just an alien concept. So I have to embrace the joy in my life. And there's been a lot of darkness. And there has been a time for the darkness. There's also a time for joy. And I, I just believe that life is such a beautiful, beautiful gift. And who am I to sort of, you know, to turn my back on that? 
that's just not who I am. That's not my natural feelings. And it's just, it's just how I approach life. Thank you so much, John, for being so honest, so truthful. I admire your bravery. I admire your honesty. And you've, you're actually helping me today in everything you've said. And I, I honestly mean that. So thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you, Brian. It's, it's really a lovely, a lovely thing to say. Um, and yeah, I, look, if, uh, if any of our conversation can positively impact anyone, then isn't it worthwhile? I mean, I just want to say thank you so much again, you know, for, for inviting me on and uh, for doing what you're doing, because it's not an easy thing for you either, Brian, you know, because to constantly talk about the area of grief uh, and you're constantly, you know, recalling, you know, all the different feelings that you're experiencing with your mother. So I think it's really commendable that you're doing that and you're doing that for other people. So well done. Emotionally, I feel that I'm, I'm stronger and I've taken so much, honestly, from everyone that's been on the podcast. It's like I'm using them as like my therapists. And it's so, it's been so honestly beneficial to me. And like what you said, you've got to feel it. And I wanted to feel it. And it's a journey and it's something. Grief and I are friends and we have to be friends, you know? Yeah, no, it's, I think you've summarized it all brilliantly. it's a it's a roller coaster that you just you have to ride it and you know there's nothing wrong with feeling down and looking to sort of feel closer through you know a connection such as a photo or, or a smell or a sound i mean you just you have to sort of you have to feel that in that moment you admitted yourself that you are a hugger so the next time i see you you yeah. owe me one big hug john <laughs> it'll be coming your way don't worry about that Brian. John, thank you so much. Give James hugs and kisses from all of us. I will, of course. Thanks again, Brad. I'd like to thank John for his honesty and willingness to speak to me today. It's clear he will always hold Michaela in his heart and remember her as part of his family forever. Next week, I meet Benji Bennett. Benji talks about losing his son Adam suddenly in 2007 and how in the wake of his loss, Benji was moved to memorialise his son in a series of children's books. He was dearly and deeply loved by all of us. He was funny. He knew nothing but happiness and, and running around in, in, in bare feet and, and freedom. And that is the beauty. And, and that was always then became the message of the books, is that nobody knows what's going to happen. And if children are happy and they're told they're loved and they're given a little bit of freedom to, to do what kids are supposed to do, that for me is the secret of raising a happy kid and to be told you're loved every night and to have a happy dream because of it you're just gonna wake up happy the next day